Welcome to the latest episode of Take Back Our Schools. I'm Andrew Gutman. I'm your host for this episode. Our co-host, Bethany Mandel, is not with us again for this episode, but I think she'll be back uh, with our next episode. So you're stuck once again just with me. But we do have a guest that is, it's very exciting because we call this podcast Take Back Our Schools. And I don't think that there's a topic we could talk about that is more relevant to the subject of Take Back Our Schools, especially parents taking back our schools, than the conversation we're going to have today with Matt Bienberg. Uh, Matt is the director of the Van Sittert Center, if I pronounced that right, for Constitutional Advocacy and Director of Education Policy at the Goldwater Institute. Published in local and national outlets, Matt's work focuses on promoting educational freedom, parental rights, and greater civic appreciation of America's founding principles, all things that we very highly support here at Take Back Our Schools. Uh, prior to joining Goldwater, Matt served as a senior analyst at the Arizona Joint Legislative Budget Committee where he regularly drafted fiscal estimates and briefed members of the state legislature on major policy initiatives in K through 12 and higher education. Matt previously worked in human capital consulting for Mercer where his projects included surveying teacher engagement and analyzing the competitiveness of staff salaries at low-income area charter schools in Los Angeles. He has also worked in Washington DC with Imagine Schools and the Center for Education Reform. Matt earned a bachelor's in economics from Claremont McKenna College, where he graduated summa cum laude, and a master's in public affairs from Princeton, a native of Phoenix. He lives with his wife, Cassie, in South Scottsdale. So, Matt, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So, you've been involved in sort of education issues for a long time, it sounds like. Um, was that always, I'm just curious, was that always a, a particular interest of you? Is this something you kind of fell into? I've uh, been interested in education, obviously, for a long time, um, as you mentioned, kind of the background, both in economics and public policy. So, you know, a lot of uh, education has to do with, you know, uh, some of the stuff that seems a little more boring, the, the funding behind it. Um, usually we kind of hear from the left, and maybe you can get into this more that, you know, the solution to everything is, is more Money. funding. Yeah. And so having having a grasp of kind of the way that it actually works and what the, the facts on the ground are, I think helps frame some of that those conversations a little bit better instead of it just turning into as you said, a tagline saying, you know, give us more money. So um, obviously I think what's uh, of particular relevance right now is, as you kind of alluded to, and, and you guys focus here is kind of the content, you know, setting aside even the dollars and, and what's actually being taught to the kids. So uh, yeah, definitely issues of, of huge importance. Okay. So, all right, we're going to talk about transparency legislation because it's something you're working on and something very relevant, but I, I want to go a little bit backwards. So we're broadly talking about what we kind of call like critical race theory or CRT. Um, I'm curious in all your education work when that sort of first came on your radar as an issue. Yeah, I mean, I think that we've seen for years sort of the, the smoldering elements of, of, of all this stuff kind of bubbling up under the surface. Obviously, CRT itself sort of broke onto the, the radar over the last, you know, I'd say two years. Um, we were working on this transparency issue even before that, you know, you had things, you know, 1619 project, the Zen yep. education project. Um, stuff that wasn't branded as CRT, but was still sort of aligned with that ideology of kind of treating the world in terms of, you know, politicization, oppressor oppressed. So um, it's something that, and that's where I think a lot of the left has tried so hard to, to get into these fights about, well, is CRT taught or is it not taught? At the end of the day, it's less about is something branded as CRT and more just, well, what's the message? What's the actual content itself? So this is something that's, I think, been a long time in the making. And it's been something that, again, even before I think this made the headlines about yeah. CRT that we've been trying to, to, to help uh, get parents support because they've been concerned about it for a while. Yeah. So, I mean, 1619, I don't know, was maybe three, four years ago in the New York Times or maybe even more than that now. 
Um, I mean, zinification of history has been going on for far, far longer, I think. I mean, how far do you know how far back that kind of I mean, look, I mean, we can talk about, you know, progressive influence and leftist right. influence in public education for probably 100 years. Um, yeah. But, and I think I mean, it, it is decades that, that that stuff has been there. I think it's been you know, and obviously with higher education in particular, it's no secret that there's, you know, typically a slant um, uh, in, in a lot of this. But I think what we've seen is it's broken out into the open into K-12 in a way that it wasn't there before. And so I think there's both greater awareness and a greater push from the left to to view education as not a, a chance to form students academically and make sure they have the basics, but to form them politically, ideologically. And so I think it's gone from you know, something that's, that's kind of there uh, overlaid on things a little bit to now it's becoming a priority. So I think where it, it has reached a pretty critical stage. Yeah. I mean, I've talked about this a lot and, and what happened to me is, is that, you know, I saw the mission change, right? This had been coming into the schools, you know, my background is it's in the private schools for my daughter. And then there was that mission change in the summer of 2020 with George Floyd and BLM, where it felt like they, they completely left what is traditional education behind to then, move towards training, you know, social activists and, and the complete politicization of schools. So I, so let's go back to CRT specifically. When, were you surprised that this be, I mean, it was about a year, year and a half ago that this sort of just exploded as a national issue, as a political issue, obviously had huge influences in elections last November in Virginia, particularly, and everyone expects it to have huge influences, you know, this coming November in the midterms. Was that a surprise to you that this issue that you've been working on or, you know, or aspects of it for a long time sort of became, you know, one of the biggest, if not the biggest sort of national domestic issue around. I mean, in a sense, as you said, right, in, in 2020 is when a lot of this stuff really uh, broke into the mainstream in the way that it did. But um, even just the year before that, one of the things that we've pointed out, the, the National Education Association, NEA, you know, nation's largest teachers union, they were essentially ready on day one in, in 2020 when, when everything started happening post-George Floyd you look back at 2019 and the NEA had their annual dele- annual national represent, uh, representative assembly where they bring in delegates from all around the country. They voted on a whole slew of resolutions. And we've, we've tried to kind of share this with folks as much as possible. They voted down a resolution that said, we're going to put a renewed emphasis on quality public education. And they turned around at the same meeting and voted up resolutions saying, we need to push for reparations in our schools and push our students to support them. We need to push uh, elements of white fragility into messaging. So a lot of this stuff, even pre- George Floyd pre-2020, you had the unions lining up saying, we need to actively infuse this kind of content in our staff training and in our education system. So I think they were essentially looking for a catalyst. They used the events of 2020 and suddenly they saw, you know, a chance everybody wanted to try and be sensitive and be supportive. And I think that they tried to exploit that and essentially say, we've got a blank check to now push, you know, not for a, a reasonable conversation, but you know. So this is don't let a crisis go to waste. And they obviously didn't. I, you know, I think that's yeah. Okay. Okay. No, that's interesting. I mean, you know, from, from a parent perspective, we'll get into this because that's, you know, transparency is a lot about, uh, you know, parents knowing what's going on at the school. We didn't realize that this was, there was this push for this, you know, pre, you know, summer of 2020. Um, so it's interesting to hear that, that they, this was, this was going on. Um, so le- last year there was a big push towards, you know, what we loosely call sort of banned CRT legislation. I know, I don't know, maybe close to 20 states, something like that, have put that in. Is that, I'm, I'm curious, is that something you were involved with? Is that something you were supportive of? And then I want to talk about how that does tail or doesn't with what you're doing now with the transparency legislation. 
Yeah. And as you said, right, last year, that was kind of the, the momentum behind this to, to say, hey, let's let's stop this particularly pernicious. You know, it, most of the, the bills look somewhat similar to say, here's a list of, you know, six or seven uh, pretty explicitly uh, clear kind of things that, that don't really have a place in our public schools, that a teacher should be saying that a student should be treated differently based upon race. So right. most of those things uh, are, are kind of what was in those bills. Um, we've essentially seen transparency as, as a, a separate piece for, there are some states that either have done the bans or, or don't, um, you know, we are, uh, supportive of, of some of those well-crafted pieces of legislation that are, are clear and narrow, right? Obviously you don't want something that is so amorphous or vague that it's, it's sort of unclear, but, you know, Arizona, for instance, there's a, a measure moving here. Um, and it's, it's to stop those elements of CRT from being taught but in a way that's very clear, it's direct, and it's narrowly tailored in a way that, you know, essentially is, is very, it makes it very evident what the line is right. that you're not supposed to do. So the criticism is obviously that it's too broad. It's a censorship. You're effectively banning books. You're muzzling teachers and they can't teach history. They can't teach slavery, right? That's the criticism we hear from, from the left, from the teachers unions. Yeah. Right. And it's sort of a silly criticism, I think, because at the end of the day, we're, we're talking about public schools, right? And by virtue right. of the fact they are a public school, they make decisions about what they're spending taxpayer resources and taxpayer staff time to promote. And so when it comes to free speech issues, this isn't a, a, a university professor, right? This is a, if you're talking about a third grade teacher with a captive audience of eight year olds, you know, this is not a free speech question. This is an issue of paid government speech. This is essentially state sponsored speech. And so to say we're not going to have taxpayer resources going and being used in that way, that is, that's not a, a free speech issue. That's, that's essentially saying we're not going to have our state or our government institutions actively pushing for things that are in violation of, you know, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. Um, so it's, it's not an issue to say that teachers as private citizens can't, you know, express their opinions. But it's another thing to say using your position of authority as a state agent, you know, over students, um, that that's a very different different issue, right? Okay, so let's let's get to the transparency. So you drafted some model legislation. What, what's the issue here? Why don't parents know what's going on? Can yeah. they know? You know, pre pre this legislation. I mean, what what's sort of the issue in public right. schools? Right. So obviously during COVID, uh, when you know most schools switched to some kind of online learning or Zoom, parents got to see very clear what was happening. Either they would see it in Zoom, or they would see uh, you know the schools would sort of put online. Well, here's the list of the materials that you need to to, to read, fill out, work on. All that stuff was was blown wide open so parents could see it. And so there's been no shortage of examples over the last couple of years of parents seeing things and saying, whoa, that's not OK. You know, this is clearly political activism. This is you know, for, for any number of dimensions and reasons. Parents saw things and said, this is not what K-12 education. This is not focusing on educating our students. This is getting into activism or indoctrination. So historically, a lot of states, Arizona included, where we're based, have laws on the books that say, Parents have a right to review material, all the materials that are being used in, in a school. But in practice, what that leads to, and there's federal law as well that says parents have the right to inspect all instructional materials that are being used. So this is the expectation everywhere. The parents, there, there's no reason, again, as, as public entities, that the schools should be able to mask, hide, or cloak what it is that they're, they're teaching. But when it comes to parents who actually then want to see it, we've seen examples around the country of parents say, hey, I'd like to know what's what's being taught. And there was a, a mom in Rhode Island, Nicole Solis, who we're now working with, and she had an incoming kindergarten daughter. And she saw on the school's website some stuff that you know said they're not going to use what they deemed gendered terminology, like boys and girls, and, and things on there that kind of raised some eyebrows for her. So she said, can I see the curriculum that you're going to be using for my kindergarten daughter? 
And instead of, you know, just saying, Hey, yeah, sit down to the teacher. We can talk through it. And, and you'll, you know, we'll talk through any concerns. They said, you've got to go through a formal public records request and basically make her claw out this information. And then when she did it, then they said, well, you've submitted too many questions now, threatened a lawsuit, the NEA got involved, blocked her access. Um, and that's just one example. I mean, we've seen parents testifying now on, on transparency bills around the country saying, I wanted to know what the curriculum was. I asked the teacher. They said, go to the principal. The principal said, go to the school board. The school board said, go talk to the teacher. And they get this runaround right. um, or they're told, submit these records requests. And then the district says, well, it's going to cost us $500 or $5,000 to tell you what's being taught in our classes because we don't necessarily have it compiled. And we're going to have to pull this information. So if, if parents want to know, they're basically right now at the mercy of either hoping that their kid comes home with something in their backpack and tells them about it, in which case you're sort of stuck in the school at that point, right? You, you may be able to grumble the teacher or the school board, but you need to have parents have that awareness and that decision before they've had to enroll their kid and now sort of be, be a captive audience. Right. What would have happened absent COVID? So, so we know, you know parents saw this because of Zoom school or online school. Would they have ever realized what's going on, you think? Um, I think they probably would have, um, you know, due to things like social media, you're still able to see, um, you know, some of, of the stories breaking out and getting some coverage. I think COVID made it a lot clearer to parents uh, that this was not because this is the thing we hear from the left. Oh, this is just a manufactured crisis or this isn't real. Right. You're, you're cherry picking a couple anecdotes, but it's hard to make that case when you're seeing parents, you know, around the country who are flagging things and concerned about it. I mean, this is, this is not something you have teachers as well. You know, we've kind of pointed this out teachers themselves now, even in places like education week, which is a historically fairly mainstream neutral education journal, uh, having thrown in and, and publishing a series of articles over the last year or so from teachers saying things like getting politics out of the classroom is like getting the water out of rain. Uh, I mean, it's literally teachers themselves saying we have to inject this into everywhere. So even if COVID hadn't happened, I think we're seeing the left in particular and, and educators on the left being more unabashed in, in saying we believe we have a mandate to push politics in the classroom. Yeah. So, OK, so let's get to the transparency legislation that you, know, you, you, you helped draft. What is different about it than what was already on the books in a lot of states or, as you said, at the federal level? And, and how does that and how does it have teeth that those previous legislation didn't have? Right. So the, the, the legislation on the books, right, that sort of establishes the principle and says parents have a right to this, but it doesn't really provide a mechanism for, for them to do that in any kind of meaningful way. So instead of saying, yeah, go through these expensive records requests or uh, be forced to drive down to a district facility, you know, maybe on the other side of the school district when you have to be at work during the day or taking care of your own kids, um, there needs to be some way to make it easier for parents to engage with uh, what that material is. And so uh, we penned back in early 2020, a, a policy report uh, calling for this idea of academic transparency, or, or it's, as it's kind of gotten picked up curriculum transparency uh, to say, we're in the 21st century. Uh, let's make it so that parents in the same way they can go online and see any number of other things about a school, whether that's graduation rates or student performance or state letter grades or financial information. Let's put that same type of transparency for the what's arguably more important which is what's actually being taught to the kids right. uh, and say, let's have it so that a parent can, whether it's in the middle of the day or in an evening after they're home from work or their kids have gone to bed, 
can go online, look at the school's website, see the content that's there, either for their own kids as they're doing that or for the, the grade level their, their students are going to be going into, or again, as they're making that enrollment decision. So the transparency, that the crux of the transparency legislation is to say, put a simple listing of the materials that are actually used, not photocopying you know, textbooks or, or breaking copyright, but literally the, the kind of information that you'd see in a syllabus or a bibliography that just lists out the content that's being used. So just the, just the textbooks that are being used or the online resources, titles of, dis, I mean, is there, how, it, how specific, was, I, you yeah. said not obviously everything being taught in a classroom, but how, yeah. how specific, and, and if it's not very specific, how helpful is that yeah. to parents? Right. So the language that we crafted is to say, give that basic information. So whether that's sort of the, the title and then an author organization or an internet link that's associated with, that's kind of the, the core, just here's basic information. It is comprehensive and to say, it's not restricted just to the textbooks. It does need to be those supplemental resources. Those, if you're pulling you know, articles off of the internet, uh, if you're assigning YouTube clips, we've, we've seen a lot of these instances. If you're assigning the New York Times 1619 Project essays, this is actually where we're seeing a lot of the issues where schools will, will say, oh, look, we've, we've adopted our textbook. That's public knowledge. Um, but a lot of the controversial content or the, the real political, you know, politically infused materials are coming in these supplementals. Real Clear Politics did a, a great piece on this actually a couple of years ago and said 1619 is being used in all 50 states, thousands of classrooms across all 50 states, mostly being used as supplemental materials, meaning a, if a teacher or if a parent goes to a school again and says, hey, are you using 1619? I don't want to send my kid to a school that's doing that because I don't think that it's accurate history. The schools will tell them, well, it's not part of our adopted curriculum, but our teachers are free to supplement their resources with whatever materials they, they may wish. So 1619 still lands on the kid's desk. So the transparency legislation says you're still free to do that. But if you do, now you have to disclose that. And is that in real time? I mean, is that at the beginning of the year? And, 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 you know, secondarily, how much leeway, I mean, you sometimes have, you know, something happens in the news, uh, you know, Ukraine war and a teacher wants to talk about Russian history or something like that. Would they, they, they then have to go and disclose if they pulled a New York Times article about the war from yesterday to, you know, to talk about that? Is that how yeah. specific? Great question. Right. So the, the bills, we, we crafted it all to be retrospective, to say that essentially um, either by the end of the year, make sure everything is listed or within you know, 30 days or within 10 days or seven days, essentially, you're free to use what it is that you would like, but then you disclose it. And this is a point that the teachers unions have, have tried very hard to push in their messaging to say, all these bills require every single resource to be determined on day one for the entire year and basically get teachers spooked to say, you're not going to be able to adapt your lesson plans, even if you find some great resource four months down the line. So the materials there, the, the, the legislation says, you're still free to use it, you have to disclose it. And so the idea there is it's close enough to real time in most cases that a parent at least is going to be aware and be able to have a conversation. And again, critically, if you're a parent looking for, well, what's, what's my kid going to encounter? Well, if you can see what was used in that class the year before or in that school the year before, right. there may be some things that are going to change, but you've got a pretty darn good idea of what to expect, what to talk to the teacher about, what to talk to your kids about as you're making that enrollment decision. So there's a bill in Arizona that, um, you know, we're, we're, we're helping to, to support as well. And it, it says for any instructional materials you're using within seven school days after use, you report it for a limited set of topics around race, gender discrimination, post that 72 hours in advance, but that's limited to, to essentially just those topics where we have seen, you know, examples of teachers teaching things, which, you know, if, if you're getting into some of that content, you know, it, it, there's sort of a heightened sensitivity around giving parents a little bit of a heads up to say, maybe that's something that isn't age appropriate or, you know, what have you, but broadly but, speaking. 
with, with the idea that then parents could opt out maybe of that? Is that obviously that's not part of the legislation, but is that sort of you know, it, the mindset? Or, or at the very least to, to, to bring it up and speak. And there was a, a parent who testified in, in Arizona at one of the committee hearings and said, you know, we had an example of a teacher, even without this legislation on the books yet, who said, you know, she was going to be using a, a podcast and put that on the weekly lesson plan in advance. And the parents, you know, raised some eyebrows and they kind of talked to the teacher, talked to the principal, and they all kind of jointly recognized maybe this isn't age appropriate for these kids. And so they sort of averted what otherwise would have been, you know, a lot of heartburn and, and a lot of grief to essentially say, yeah, look, everybody kind of came together and and work this out. So um, in, in all these cases, it's to say, look, we're still providing flexibility. We still want great um, you know, academics and, and education, but there's no reason that this information at least can't be disclosed afterwards. And, and we sort of pointed out uh, as teachers across the country have written, it's a pretty standard practice, not universal, but very common practice for schools to have, or for individual teachers to submit lesson plans each week, to use things like Google Classroom where they're posting, hey, here's what we're going to do this week. Here's the links to the videos we're using. Here's the links to all this reading. These bills would essentially say, do that and make it, make sure you're doing it and make it public. So look, we'll get to, we'll get to the pushback, obviously from the teachers unions, which you alluded to a minute ago, but to your point you just made, do you have, you have a sense for where individual teachers, you know, how they kind of shake out? I mean, I'm guessing there's some, you know, polarization based on politics of how teachers shake out on this, but you know, the, the, the criticism which you said, you know, that this could be a burden to teachers, which from what you're describing sounds like it really shouldn't be. It really isn't. Uh, you know, the teachers unions make it seem like it is. But from an, from an individual teacher perspective, do you have any feedback on what they how they feel about this? Yeah, there's a, a legislator here in Arizona who's a, a, a teacher. And um, during his uh, floor statements the other day, said this is potentially the most important bill of this session. Right. To say this is is we've there's an op ed at uh, Real Clear Education came out about a week ago. A teacher saying this would be hugely important to actually improve, you know, facilitate that conversation between uh, parents, teachers, and, and students. And also, one of the the major things uh, teachers in North Carolina have have testified on this and around the country to say, you know what, right now the way that education kind of works. And uh, Robert Pondicio over at AEI, a former educator, has kind of said the same thing. You know, pointing back and said, look, when I first started teaching, and I went into the classroom and I asked my principal and coach, like, okay, what what do I use to teach? And they basically said, it's up to you. Go build your classroom from the ground up. These teachers are spending, and the research shows teachers reporting spending four hours each week searching for materials to use in the classroom. That's sort of reinventing the wheel, you know, a thousand times over and over. Whereas if this material is put online, as these teachers are writing to say, hey, it would actually be helpful when I'm starting off, especially as a new teacher, if I can come in as a you know, eighth grade history teacher and, and see like, well, what are the other great schools in my area doing to teach American history to not have to scour Google and, and Pinterest for this as, as they're reporting doing now, but to say, yeah, I can maybe use that. That'll be the starting point. If I like that, I can use it as a springboard. I can add to it, subtract, but that's actually what we're seeing from those teachers. Obviously the teachers union, which represents a, you know, a, a huge constituency, uh, again, the NEA, the same group pushing for politics in the classroom has launched letter writing campaigns and going full in against this. Uh, and so you, you do have that kind of two different schools within the education um, community of those saying this would be great because it's actually promoting the sharing of resources, transparency and, and uh, collaboration. And those saying, you know, no, basically, butt out, trust us, this would be right. a, a hassle. Right. I, I'm going to ask a very dumb question because I don't know. I went to public schools, but you know, as a kid, I, I don't know that much. Typically, because you mentioned this a minute ago, how much leeway does an individual teacher have for what they teach in the classroom? And maybe it varies 
district to district, state to state. I don't, I don't really know, but sort of, you know, the very dumb question. I mean, how, how much typically does a teacher have? Leeway? Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely not a dumb question. In fact, it's, I would say it's a critical question and it's one that, that does not get asked or, or uh, addressed a lot. The answer does vary. And you do have some districts that, that provide, uh, you know, part of the legislation in Arizona says, in addition to posting what your materials are, post online what process there is for even reviewing, documenting, or approving the materials that are used for, for kids. Because there is so much variation where in some cases, the teachers are given you know, virtually any authority to, to use the content they want. There are other schools or districts or charter networks that say, this is our approved set of materials. You are not to deviate from it, right? These are vetted high quality you know, materials, it's not time to go on YouTube and Google and pull random materials into the classroom. So there's actually, it's not quantified uh, essentially anywhere in terms of this breakdown between the two, but we do see two very distinct schools and then a whole spectrum in between of, yeah, look, the teacher is essentially given extremely wide latitude or no, the teachers are, are brought in to be educators using the materials that are, that are there. So that's actually part of this uh, right now is there is such a uh, such a distinction. And the, the um, I, I kind of alluded to it. There's research that's been done from RAND Corporation and others documenting where are teachers going to pull content. And, and the top three reported things were search engines, teachers pay teachers, and Pinterest. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's things that, that right, it, there's great content on, on some of this stuff. You can find Khan Academy on, on, on YouTube, right. uh, but then there's a lot of garbage that's out there. A lot there. of garbage. So, so this essentially says, again, that not to say what you can and can't use, but let's bring a little bit of order or, or at least transparency to it. Right. Uh, and so your, your question is not dumb at all. I think it gets to the heart of, there's a big question mark when it comes to what actually is even going into the classroom. So I just want to go back for one second. And just to be clear about something, the, the obligation to, to disclose what is being taught in the classroom. You mentioned the 72 hour aspect of specific topics like race or gender or sexuality, or I think you said, um, but the, the, the broader obligation applies to every cl- I mean, a lot of us parents think, OK, this is only in history or this is only in English, when in fact they are infusing this into everything, into science, into art, into music. So does that obligation exist for every subject, every academic subject, everything in the school? Can you talk a little bit about how broad this is? Yeah. Yep. So we, we drafted our model legislation, which, again, a lot of states have, have drawn from to say essentially any learning, any instructional materials that are used for student instruction. And so that goes on to kind of clarify that this is for an academic subject or that the majority of kids in a grade are doing at the school. Um, and it, it is, you know, to your point, there, there were, you know, questions about, well, is, is it really just history? Is it just English or, or is it just a handful? And obviously, you know, we, we've seen um, all these different versions of uh, math, science, you know, there's the yep. Seattle example where they were pushing an ethnic studies math framework that was yep. their guiding principles were how do we change math from individualistic to collectivist thinking, you know, I, I, and sort of these, these things that you shouldn't have to worry about a science class or a math class, and yet we're seeing that. Uh, and so this, this essentially would say, look, this is a best practice across the board um, to have the schools do it. And honestly, once they do it, you know, again, veteran teachers don't start from scratch each year, right? And this is one of the things that the unions don't like to sort of acknowledge, but but high quality teachers are either recording what it is they use so that they know they have it the next year, um, you know? And so this essentially says, yeah, once you put this online, if you make changes to it in future years, you can tweak your list or, or tinker with that, but it's not something that is a, sort of an ongoing uh, extra requirement other than just sort of at the margin saying, yeah, I decided to add in this resource or that resource. So let's talk about the pushback a little bit more, mostly, I assume, from the teachers unions. You know, the two that, that I've seen, one you mentioned, which is this could be a burden on, on teachers 
which, you know, you've talked about how it really shouldn't be. Um, and the other one that this is sort of the, the side way of, of banning CRT because you're, you know, bullying teachers into not teaching what they want to teach. If you comment on that second one um, and then, you know, what, what are some of the other pushbacks or some of the other objections that you've seen? Yeah, I'd say those are the top two. The other one that we've heard a lot is we don't need academic transparency or we don't need curriculum transparency because our schools are already transparent. We hear uh, that okay. a lot, which which is sort of patently absurd when, when you see and, and the response back from the other side is our schools are already transparent. You can go online and see state standards or a, a curriculum framework. And in a lot of cases, that's true. But those are sort of meaningless when it comes to saying, well, what, what are you actually using? Right. If you're telling a parent, go check out the state standards, you'll see that we'll teach about the Civil War or the Civil Rights Movement or American history. Well, it's very different. Are you assigning, you know, again, 1619 Project? Or are you assigning you know, Frederick Douglass, you know, so there's a huge disparity there. And so they, they kind of play these word games, same thing with CRT, right? Where they say, well, it's not being taught right. and sort of, so that one I think is one that they've tried, I think very unsuccessfully and unpersuasively to make. Uh, we've seen various elements of the second version you said, which is, this is really an attempt at censorship. Um, uh, and so we, we've seen the, the unions and lawmakers come out and literally say that transparency is censorship. The ACLU um, actually came out uh, about a month ago and on social media said these curriculum transparency bills are just thinly veiled attempts at chilling teachers and students from learning and talking about race and gender in schools, which is a pretty uh, explicit and amazing admission that they see these curriculum transparency bills as a threat to their ability to push their lessons on gender and race. Because essentially what they're saying is if parents know what materials we're using to have these conversations, parents might object. Right. And that is, you know, that should set off all the all the alarms and, and, and warning signs, because if you're teaching on obviously very sensitive topics and you don't believe that these are materials that are defensible to the parent community or the public, that's, you know, there's clearly a sign that, that something is awry. And so they have argued that this is is somehow preventing free speech. Again, the idea that government institutions and even the ACLU in the past has, has advocated for transparency and curriculum. They've been involved in instances for this, but because now they're pushing sort of a political agenda over the principles and the ideology of, uh, you know, transparency and, right. and, and actually speech. focused on, uh, <laughs> right. right. They're, they're trying to twist this. Right. So that, that's sort of a, um, I, I think a fairly absurd um, angle, but they, they are pushing it. Uh, and again, it's literally arguing that by making parents aware of what a government school is teaching, you're somehow censoring speech, um, Again, not not particularly persuasive, but it is one that, that they're they're definitely they're pushing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it really gets to the heart of you know, like the the you know Virginia gubernatorial debate where where Terry McAuliffe said you know parents should have no say in their what their kids are being taught. I mean, at, at the you know the end of the day, that's sort of what this debate is about. Should parents have a say? And I think most well, most of us on our on this side of the you know of views think that parents should have obviously a say. I mean, I've heard. You know, if folks like Chris Rufo, I know, has been pushing, you know, this this kind of transparency legislation and say, you know, you know, yeah, how can you really be against transparency? I mean, that's it's sort of a no brainer when you really think about. It, but obviously, to your point, there's there's a lot of folks on the side of there shouldn't be transparency. I think they recognize that the transparency is does pose a, essentially an existential threat to their ability yeah. to push this stuff in secret. I mean, I can say I'll say this because, again, my a lot of my fight in the last year has been in the private school world, which is so much harder, because if you think there's not a lot of transparency in public schools, there's orders of magnitude less in private schools. We don't have the ability 
to do things like, you know, Freedom of Information Act requests. There are no school boards we can sit in. We, you know, if we even question things in the private school world, we run the risk of having our kids kicked out of school. So all those things is that, you know, is a little bit easier in the public school world, which is why I think we've made some progress on these issues in the public school world. We have not made progress, you know, in the private school world. And, I, and, and I'm assuming that the kind of legislation that you've drafted and that states are looking at and trying to adopt is just public school. Yeah, that's oriented. right. And, and we have seen a lot of, you know, warning signs in, in certain private schools in some of the charter networks in, you know, some of these, these instances, obviously with a private school that is not a, you know, a government funded uh, right. entity, even instances where states have sort of school choice programs that may provide, you know, tax credit uh, scholarships, the private schools at the end of the day are still having to compete and essentially say, you know, is it worth the, the tuition that the, that the parents are opting into? And so, you know, our hope is that over time, this would become a, a kind of best practice that everybody would would be doing. Um, and as parents come to expect, you know, having that transparency, but in both K-12 and, and higher ed, obviously, yeah, you've got, you know, private and public entities that are, are moving and, and in the corporate world as well, right, that are moving toward a lot of this very left-wing, you know, hard, hard left type of politics. So uh, yeah, it's, it's obviously an issue uh, at large. But uh, just to be clear, Charter schools would fall under this obligation? Uh, they would. Okay. They would. Yeah. okay, that's good. And I'm curious about one thing more, which is the objection of parents. Uh, you know, race, the racial stuff, you know, called critical race theory, got a lot of you know, publicity over the last year or two. Now I think we're seeing some more pushback on the gender sexuality ideology. Do you have a sense for what is incensing parents more? If it's if it's more the racial stuff, 1619 and how we look at American history and the founding principles, or is it more some of this absolutely, you know, I think crazy kind of an age inappropriate gender sexuality type of education in the curriculum? Yeah, uh, I, I mean, it's definitely both. And, you know, when you see parents come home with with their kids, having been forced to do a, a privilege walk or play privilege, privilege bingo, uh, yeah. you know, to say that either because of their race or their gender. I mean, a lot of the stuff that the two are merged together. Right. And that's part of sort of the the critical race theory, intersectionality, that that whole it, it sticks you know, gender identity and, and racial identity and tries to essentially say if you're not part of these uh, agreed victimized groups that you're, you know, now you're part of the, the privileged oppressor class. Uh, and so I think parents, you know, we're seeing all sorts of things around gender identity and, and trying to keep parents, you know, again, some pretty shocking examples of schools trying to hide things from parents uh, and, and push a lot of this content on, you know, kids is in those elementary grades. Uh, and so I think that you've, you've seen parental outrage. So it's sort of hard to, to say at a particular example of, of what's good, but from the parents that we've talked to, uh, the idea that a kid's going to come home and having been, uh, you know, subjected to this either on account of their, their race or, or getting embroiled in, in a gender identity type of issue. Uh, I think both of those have, have gotten parents to be pretty fed up. Yeah, I think that's right. So where are we on states adopting this? I think there's, a, I, I read about a dozen states that were somewhere, you know, in process, uh, is yeah. that right? And, and I don't think and have any states passed this yet. So there are about 20 states that have actually introduced legislation around it. Wisconsin okay. and Pennsylvania, the legislatures uh, both passed the legislation uh, or versions of it uh, last year. They were both vetoed by their governors, uh, both left wing governors uh, who essentially blocked it, uh, you know, sort of, again, in line with the, the teachers union approach. Uh, Florida, actually, the legislature just passed a, a version, both chambers, that would say all instructional materials have to be posted online. 
uh, in Arizona this week. We actually, Sorry, was that part of that Stop Woke Act or was that something? Uh, it's a separate, it's a separate, separate. piece of okay. legislation. Um, Arizona, the, the state Senate, the full Senate just passed it uh, this week. Uh, it's moving in places like Iowa, Kansas, uh, around the country still. So we're seeing, um, you know, pretty major momentum behind this as, as of course, the unions are throwing everything they've got to, to try and stop it. Uh, and so this is an issue that, that we are seeing, a, a, you know, I, I think a lot of a lot of demand from parents, grassroots and, and seeing legislators starting to, to take note. I just want to go back to one aspect of, of the of what you proposed. Um, libraries. Something we didn't mention. I, I know there's been a lot of parent parents upset over some of the books that are in libraries. Again, especially on the gender and sexuality and age inappropriateness of some of that. Does that uh, do libraries come into play here? Yeah, good kind of libraries? So we had in, in a version of our um, model policy said for any schools that have essentially their library resources cataloged or documented to make that um, available as well. Um, so there, that in Arizona, that's now a separate piece of legislation from the, the core transparency piece. Um, but obviously, yeah, you know, library materials that are used. The Arizona bill says parents have the right to come in and inspect a classroom library uh, to see the, the materials there as well. So um, there are kind of different approaches on this, but, but absolutely trying to bring some transparency to those um, to those resources as well. Again, you, you can go online for any public library, right, to any local city municipal right. library and see what's what's in their catalog. Um, and so, again, the idea that for some reason a school library should be a black box and is off limits and to make that disclosed would be inhibiting free speech is kind of hard to, to reconcile with the, the precedent of just basic government library services that we see elsewhere. So is there anything else parents should know about this? Anything we haven't covered that you think parents should know either in terms of transparency in general or in terms of helping get some of this, you know, this kind of legislation passed in states where it might, I mean, not in blue states, I don't think we have much of a shot, but in states where we do have a shot at getting this passed. Yeah. I mean, I think it's trying to get involved with, with the parent groups in your state. Um, and if your state is, is working on legislation, uh, you know, to, to get connected with that, to reach out to lawmakers and, and basically say, yeah, this is something that, that we need because the teachers unions are not wasting any time. They are putting together their mailers. They're putting together their, you know, all of their campaign materials to go after this. And even though there's obviously many more parents, you know, by an order of magnitude, there's a poll that came out, 84% of the public supports parents having a right to see all curriculum and materials being used. Even though there's far more parents and, and voters than there are teachers, the union members are obviously very organized and very disciplined. And so making sure to get that voice heard uh, is, is critical. Well, Matt, thanks for coming on. Thanks for talking about this. I think this is something that is incredibly important. One, well, you know, one, one of the many ways that we need to try to fix education with and take back our schools. So I really appreciate you coming on today. Thanks for having me on. Great to speak with you. So we hope you enjoyed that conversation with Matt Beienberg of the Goldwater Institute, talking mostly about curriculum transparency. We will be back with another episode soon of Take Back Our Schools. I think Bethany will be back with us for our next episode. And as always, if you like what you heard, and I hope you did, we would certainly appreciate if you would share this with your friends, if you would give us a good rating on wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. So until next time, thanks again for tuning in to Take Back Our Schools. Ricochet. Join the conversation.